Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are entering the book of Devarim of Deuteronomy. We finished the book of Bamidbar last Shabbat, uh, and we begin the book of Devarim. We begin uh, the book of Deuteronomy, which is usually seen by us as the fifth, the last book of the Torah. Really, though, Deuteronomy is less the last book of the Pentateuch than it is the first book of the Deuteronomic history. Uh, what we don't really learn together ever is the Deuteronomic history. Judges, Joshua, Kings, we don't read that stuff. That really is what the Deuteronomist is concerned about, is composing the Deuteronomic history of Israel, to which this is the preamble. The, the Pentateuch, right, we've talked about that Deuteronomy is a different author, and we're not going to get into this time, uh, dating, right? So we don't know where exactly it is in relation to P. Remember we talked about P? P can be, the priestly writer can be early or late. If P is really late, then it's post-Deuteronomy. If P is early, Deuteronomy could be after P. But there's arguments about the dating of Deuteronomy as well. What does Deuteronomy mean? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, it is It is the Latin word given to Devarim. Um, why I can't remember what Deuteronomy means. I don't know. Completely is gone from my brain. So um, you can look it up, though, in your notes. <laughs> right? Um, so the Greek, the Greek gives us uh, the, the origin of the word Deuteronomy, um, comes through the Latin Vulgate, and then to English, right? Ironically, this name stems from a misunderstanding of Deuteronomy 17:18, where the phrase first appears but actually means a copy of the teaching. Nevertheless, it is an apt designation for the book, which recapitulates the teachings of Genesis through Numbers. So apparently Deuteronomy is about um, reteaching. Um, so it, if in Hebrew, of course, the name always comes from the beginning line of that book. And so and in this case as well. So these are so Devarim means what? Words. So Ela Hadvarim Asher Diber Moshe El Kol Yisrael Be'ever HaYardain. The the first lines of Deuteronomy are these are the words that Moses addressed to all Israel on the other side of the Jordan. So for us it's words. Devarim uh, means word and also what does it mean? Thing. So in Hebrew, there's no difference between the object and the word pointing to that object, right? They both use the word davar. Both the designation of something and the thing are both davar. All right, so the most scholar, I, I'm going to risk, most scholars agree that Deuteronomy has a couple of parts. The main hunk of it, a lot of scholars want to date to the uh, religious reforms of King Josiah. King Josiah in the 7th century BCE. So the 7th century BCE, 
Josiah and the people around Josiah want to reform what's happening. What is one of the most important aspects of Deuteronomy's reform? It has to do with worship. There's there's one God in a different way in Deuteronomy than ever before. But what about sacrifice? Where can one sacrifice? The temple. Only at the temple. Only. That is Deuteronomy's agenda. Centralization of worship. What precipitated that change? So what would precipitate forcing a centralization of worship? What would do that? Why would you do that? Power. Exactly. And probably okay. scattering of people for organization. So if people are scattered, it is very, and I just showed you the map, mm-hmm. it's very hard if they're literally all over the map. <laughs> it's, right, where is that expression? What does it mean? They're all over the map. It means nobody's coordinating, right? Because when they're literally all over the map, it's very hard to have a sense of, Common shared cohesion, common shared identity, common shared goals and visions and um, all this stuff that motivates human beings to ally themselves with a power or not, or pick their own power, right, to challenge that power. Um, and so, so, Deuter- so centralization does seem to be about trying to bring the people together under the authority and the banner of one ruler who then says and teaches and expounds that it is all about coming under the one God. Right? All right. So this seems, this is the agenda of Deuteronomy. People want a place, I was just reading an article um, that said it's an argument for, for looking at, again, all, all the dating around Deuteronomy and asking, is it not possible that Deuteronomy, in fact, was written a lot earlier? Parts of it we know are later. It's, it's obvious to us. But the, the main core of Deuteronomy might it not have been written earlier and debunking a lot of the reasons it's stated at King Josiah's reform. Um, I, I trust less and less and less now my confidence in any dating of any of the sources, given the articles I'm seeing coming out all the time, really challenging what have been long held, I'm talking 100, you know, 100 years, 150 year assumptions about these texts. So I used to speak with a lot more confidence about um, when these texts were written, or at least the bulk of it. And I just don't have a clue anymore. Um, Is that because they keep finding new evidence as they excavate? You know, some of it is that um, some of it is that like any school of thought, like any school, it evolves. And so, you know, at one point they would look at the language of Deuteronomy and say that language is very clearly late language, like, you know, right. And so, so, but this article was saying, but often when you're writing this kind of material, you're trying to use the old style. Religious and liturgical language is by its very nature conservative. It doesn't change. Therefore, if we look at Babylonian, old Babylonian was being spoken, but they wrote for another millennium in the same old Babylonian mythic language that um, Atrahasis and Gilgamesh are written in. Right? And so, and that's like, oh, (laughs) right. Well, if that's true, then we can't trust 
language, if written, was very different from spoken, and if the point is to try to preserve a certain style way past when it's au courant, then we're in trouble about assuming. We can look at modern Hebrew and ancient Hebrew too. So it's. So that's what, that's what the field starts to evolve and you start to go, wait a minute, you know, all the things we've kind of assumed, if, if we call the, the very way you get there into question, it calls into question a lot of things then about, about the dating of these materials. Um, all right. So the triennial reading for this week is very much, um, for, first of all, these first chapters were appended onto the beginning of Deuteronomy. The, the bulk of Deuteronomy is the laws about Moses. This all Moses' speech to the people, right? This is Moses' final address to the people. The people he's talking to are not the people who came out of Egypt. That's what we tend to forget. I tend to forget. That the people Moshe's addressing here are their children. The people who left Egypt died in the desert. If they're just getting ready to cross over into the Jordan then this can't be those people who came out of Egypt because we know, according to the story, they died in the desert. So I, I'm just saying within the story now, right? I'm not saying what actually happened, right? We're talking it, within the story itself. If those folks were dying in the desert, Moshe can't be addressing them uh, as the people who are getting ready to go into the land. So the people he's addressing never had those experiences. These are their children who would have heard from their parents what happened, right? And about the demands of loyalty to this one invisible force in the world that made all of this happen for us and is bringing us to this land, right? So the the point of of Deuteronomy, if it is a reform, if it's if it's a religious reformation, you need a way to fire people up to buy it. Like what? Why should we change what we're doing? We like our neighborhood shrine very much, thank you. Right? We like going to KI. We are not interested in going to Mishkan Tefillah. You know, we're not interested in going to some other, to, what is it? What's the one downtown? Wilshire. 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 We're not, we're not, we're not, we don't want to go to Wilshire Boulevard. Yes, we know it's the big one. Yes, we know it's got the pretty dome. Yes, we know that that's where it fits a lot more people. Yes, we know. We, we, we like KI. Who wants to leave the Palisades? I got a schlep, right, in that traffic to go f- to go to services? Forget about it. What What's going to make me buy going to Wilshire Boulevard? That's what they're dealing with, right? That's what the, Deuteron- the Deuteronom- Deuteronomistic... Okay, come on, points for, come points for that. The Deuteronomistic agenda... Has, you got to have some fire and teeth in it to make people drive or no cross doubt, the 405. No doubt their children said, Mother. Right, Mom. <laughs> Why do we have to go at all, right? So you've got all that going on. You, you need something, right, with, with teeth. So that is part of the setup here to bring us into the agenda of Deuteronomy, which we're not at yet because we're in the introductory chapters. But we're going to look a little bit at the language, and I'm going to ask you, how are the the authors of Deuteronomy getting people to buy this agenda or this reform based on what it says here. All right, so let's let's look a little bit at uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter two, verse twenty-four. All right, who's going to read? 
up, set out across the Wadi Arnon. See, I give into your power Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin the occupation, engage him in battle. This day I begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under heaven, so that they shall tremble and quake because of you whenever they hear you mentioned. Then I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to King Sihon of Heshbon with an offer of peace as follows. Let me pass through your country. I will keep strictly to the highway, turning off neither to the right nor to the left. What food I eat, you will supply for money. And what water I drink, you will furnish for money. Just let me pass through, as the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, did for me, and the Moabites, who dwell in Ar, that I may cross the Jordan into the land that our God Adonai is giving us. But King Sihon of Heshbon refused to let us pass through because Adonai had stiffened his will and hardened his heart in order to deliver him into your power, as is now the case. And Adonai said to me, See, I begin by placing Sihon and his land at your disposal. Begin the occupation. Take possession of his land. Sihon, with all his troops, took the field against us at Jahaz, and our god Adonai delivered him to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his troops. At that time, we captured all his towns, and we doomed every town, men, women, and children, leaving no survivor. We retained as booty only the cattle and the spoil of the cities that we captured. From Arawar on the edge of the Arnon Valley, including the town and the valley itself, to Gilead. Not a city was too mighty for us. Our God, Adonai, delivered everything to us. But you did not encroach upon the land of the Ammonites all along the Wadi Jabbok and the towns of the hill country, just as our God, Adonai, had continued. Continue for a little bit. We made our way up the road toward Bashan, and King Og of Bashan, with all his troops, took the field against us at Edrai. But Adonai said to me, Do not fear him, for I am delivering him and all his troops and his country into your power, and you will do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So our god Adonai also delivered into our power <coughs> King Og and Heshbon, all his troops, and we dealt them such a blow that no survivor was left. At that time we captured all his towns, there was not a town that we did not take from them. Sixty towns, the whole district of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All those towns were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, apart from a great <coughs> number of unwalled towns. We doomed them as we had in the case of King Sihon of Heshbon. We doomed every town, men, women, and children, and retained as booty all the cattle and the spoil of the towns. Thus we seized at that time from the two Amorite kings the country beyond the Jordan, from the Wadi Arnon to Mount Hermon, Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sanir. All the towns of the Tableland and the whole of Gilead and Bashan, as far as Salka and Edrai, the towns of Og's kingdom in Bashan. Only King Og of Bashan was left of the remaining Raphaim. His bedstead, an iron bedstead, is now in Rabbah of the Ammonites, 
It is nine cubits long and four cubits wide by the standard cubit. Okay. I was very tempted, by the way, to teach today about King Og and his bedstead. I was very tempted. Nine cubits makes him makes him a giant, like bigger than Goliath, like like giant, giant, like super giant. So there's wonderful midrashic traditions around King Og and his bedstead. Um, all right. So some people want to place the authorship of the preamble to the preamble, the you know the introductory chapters that get tacked on to the law code of the you know the laws of Deuteronomy. Some people want to put this post-exilic. So if it's most of it's written around the time of Josiah, six you know something, and then seven twenty-two, um, we have the fall of northern Israel, right? Five so some people want to put this um, after the Israelites have been uh, exiled, and then remember, 50 years later, they're allowed to come back. That it's talking to the people who are coming back. Um, that, that this part is, right? So that it, the, the precursor is written post-exile and tacked on to the main Josianic reform. Why does that make sense given what we just read? Folks who've been exiled, they're coming back. Why does this speak to them? How does this fire them up? Shows that they have a power that's beyond just their own military power. They've got Adonai with them. So that, and remember, this is not a military campaign. Right. They're coming back under a, a ruling power that says, all right, I'll let you back in, but it's going to be under my rule. So it's not military at all. They have no military power. They have no military anything. So what what do they have? They have God who fought for them and did defeat all of their enemies. You don't need cannons. You don't need machine guns. Don't worry that you don't have even a bow and arrow. Just go look, look, look who's fighting on your side. It wasn't you who beat those Canaanites. It was God, by the way, who delivered them into your hands. That's how you won. You don't need your weapons. You don't need your army because God's in charge of all of it. It's okay. okay. So that you are still aligned with that force. That force is bringing you back to the land. What is the explanation in the Israelite head for why they got kicked out? We screwed up. We screwed up. Right? Which is why Deuteronomy begins with the story of the spies. Why, why do I say that? It begins with the story of the spies. How does that go to your point, Robert? Why start with the story of the spies if the point is we screwed up? Um, that's a good question. Because <laughs> so, what did that lead to? Well, uh, that, that, I'm just trying to figure out why the story of the spies was was that big a deal. <laughs> um, you know, they, they, they went in and they reported the facts, but... Uh, then what happened? But but the, the facts were there and were correct, but their interpretation was yeah. completely wrong. And what happened after they interpreted it in a wrong way? What happened after that? Because that's the chiddush, that's the point. They, they were afraid to move. Ha! They were afraid to move. They were afraid to do what God told them to do, which is go conquer the land. That was the challenge to God's authority. 
that, and then they didn't. Because what, they didn't trust that God could handle it? Well, I mean, this is how, right, the, Deuteron- the Deuteronomist sees it, is, you know, you didn't trust that God would take care of it. Don't make that mistake this time. Again, don't do it again. This time, go in with full confidence that God will take care of you. That's how you blew it the first time. So now when you come back, how do they, how do they prove we're not doing it again? How are they going to prove that? They just do what they... Let's say let's say this is the returnees, right? They're coming back. The power that rules Israel is allowing them back. How do they prove they're not the generation of the spies? They come back. Okay, they come back, so they don't stay in Babylon. And we know most of them did stay in Babylon. So, but some of them come back. So let's say they come back. How do they prove they're not that generation? That they're not doing it again. They follow the Deuteronomic law. That's how this works, right? As a right as a, a testimony. As a exactly as a way to get people on board, fired up. We can do this. We did it once. We could do it again. We're going to be loyal. We're not going to screw up like they did. We're going to follow Deuteronomy's law. We're going to follow the covenantal <coughs> law. Okay. Really important, especially as we read these texts, that says we took their cities and we took we doomed every town, men, women, and children, leaving no survivor. What is it? Very, what am I going to say? What is it very important to remember as we read this? What am I going to say? It never it's happened. It's a it never happened. It's a mythic tradition. It never happened. This holy war that we read about never happened it didn't need to to. there is no difference between emerging israelite um material culture and canaanite material culture no difference that is huge for archaeologists what does that prove it proves that there was not a group out here with a different culture that came in, killed everybody, and established their culture. There is zero of that in the record. And if you look at the destruction pattern of cities, it does not match up with the conquest. Right? You can tell in the archaeological record when a city is burned to the ground. There is a black layer that is ash that's compressed right and and tamped down over time as it's built up on top of that layer um and that lets us know okay this is when a city was destroyed you can tell when a city was destroyed by um earthquake by earthquake by fire you can tell that from by war you can tell that from the record because when you when it's by war everything is in situ everything is just as it was but right right it gets Okay, so there's ways to tell from the record how and when cities in the ancient world were destroyed, and the ones in Israel do not match the story of Joshua and the conquest. It just doesn't. So were there some skirmishes? There had to be, because as this Yahwist group you know, takes control and takes places of power, of course, that was constant in the ancient world. You know, um, fighting for power, skirmishes, battles, key cities falling. It still is. Just turn on the news and look at Fallujah. Look at, I mean, we still have, we're fighting right now for control of a city over there. 
right? To take it away from the people we think are really bad, right? I'm not judging that. I'm saying we're still doing it right now. So that's how it was in the ancient world. So that existed for sure. But this whole wholesale holy war where kill- isn't this never happened. testimony to the fact that many of these stories are testimony as opposed to factual history. Yes, 100%. What does that say about the Deuteronomist, though? Does it say they're willing to ignore fact just to create an environment of inspiration or... So some of it is the tradition that they inherit. They inherit a tradition that Moses led the Israelites in and Joshua conquered. This is long after what would have been a conquest. Way long after. Remember David? When is David? 1000 BCE. So, right, so this would have been long after those events, particularly if if this is post-exilic. If this is post-586, it's 500 years later, right? So it's almost 600 years later. So they're creating, deliberately creating a story. They are writing a story about George Washington, crossing the Delaware and everything that happened and was said to him by God as he crossed the Delaware, right? It, we, we know nothing about what was said to George Washington by God crossing the Delaware, right? So we too could be Deuteronomy. And we are, <laughs> we are, right? So when we, if we were to write a story to inspire young Americans, we would put it in the mouth of George Washington as he's looking across the battlefield, confident that because he stands for a just and worthy cause, he will crush the enemy, despite how it looks, despite the, right? So, and because we have the gift of history to know that's what happened, but we might write very differently about what his motivation was to inspire another generation of American youth to, let's say, go to war. Does that make sense? It's not a lie. It's, It's embellishment. Marketing. It's marketing. <laughs> it's propaganda. Right. It's it's you know on the good side marketing. Uh, on the net, you know if you want to be cynical about it, it's propaganda. You have to fire up the next generation. You do that by looking at your greats and your mythic moments in history of greatness and selling it as, in this case, God's will, and that that doesn't stop. Right, the God's will is still for us to do X, Y, and Z, just as in the glory days of George Washington. Yeah. Yes, Robert, you've been trying to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, I find it scary, actually, that religions, as you word plural, because mm-hmm. at least the ones that I sort of know a little bit about all seem to do it, uh, uh, create these uh, amazing myths. Yes about their birth and their history. Yes. And I'm going to suggest I was taught lovely things about Plymouth and how wonderful it was that our brave, courageous, adventuring ancestors came to this country and experienced religious freedom and and sat down with the Indians and we had a great thing called Thanksgiving dinner and then they had a constitution that guaranteed 
everybody in the land would be free and equal under the law. And I pledged allegiance proudly every morning. Right? It's it's not, we, it's not just religion, right? We we write our mythic history. And we wash over a whole bunch of stuff that we don't want to talk about, right? In this case, they weren't embarrassed about we put women and children to the sword, right? That, it's a holy war, right? That's a way, way different way of thinking. But when we rewrote American history, we didn't talk about giving Native Americans alcohol, right? Or poisoned blankets so they all died of smallpox. Nobody wanted to talk about that. But the mythic tradition is that when they came back to Plymouth, they realized that God had given them the land because the native, the indigenous people were all dead from the first wave because they all died of influenza, proving that God had cleared the land for the Europeans and the Christians. Uh, right. So don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting people mm -hmm. won't turn to religion even to validate history. What I'm saying is you don't have to use religion. You don't have to use religious ideology to mythologize your own nation's history. And it's not only cultures that do that. Humans, individual humans, do that with our own lives. We, well. Right? We, we, we rework our own histories in light of what happened later and in light of what I want that history to, be, to, to, to reflect. But it, but it is still scary, some of the consequences of this, this kind of uh, discussion of God gave us this and we wipe out, we can wipe out all these people. If... If you believe it is the word of God, it is the will of God, and it is, you know, the, the, exactly. But I want to be very clear Just that we're sitting here studying this, I don't find dangerous. If we study it as the mythology, right, that the Deuteronomist and that school was working with in order to convince people to follow the Deuteronomic law, that I'm like, okay, so that, but when it becomes fundamental truth that holds for today as well. It is absolutely terrifying. It is absolutely dangerous. And we're seeing we're seeing that every time we turn on the news as well. David? I, I think what's unsettling to me, and it, this is really unsettling, uh, is uh, that we, we find ourselves in a situation where we are being given words of a story I'm prepared to accept that these are stories that are meant to lead you into a good life and interpret, you know, our history. But it's redolent of somebody saying, let's make Israel great again. Yeah. <laughs> and that, it's really disturbing that that makes this into this story that there might have been a group of guys sitting around. There were a, table. <laughs> a group of guys so sitting around a table. Let's make Israel great again, and this is the way we're going to manipulate the people. And this has moved from just being a group of guys to our text. And what you raised was a real challenge here for me, almost an epiphany that there could be, frankly, a lot of bullshit that these guys decided they want to be our true and holy text. Because this could have been written differently. 
Yes. Everything here could have been written differently. Yes. So yes, yes, and yes to your point. So the the only the only place I want to embellish a little on your point, if I may, friendly amendment is. Um, a cynical way to look at it is a group of guys get around and think, how can we fleece the people? Um, or that, get what we want. Uh, and yes. get what we want. 100%. I 100% agree. Now, I, and just, just take one step back from that, and I'm going to say yes, 100%. But if we take out a little bit of our cynicism, which I have a lot of, <laughs> I have a lot of it, um, and, and if we ascribe, I'm not saying it's true, but let's just for a moment, just for to play with it, let's ascribe good intentions to those people. Who take? Who understand that? Wasn't until you sit. Until you sit there. I'm saying, wait a minute. This is just bullshit. Okay. All right. So, is it any more bullshit than my version that I just told, very tongue in cheek, about the founding of this country? Yes. Yes, it is. How is it different? Because I can see malicious intent here that has been codified for a purpose that I don't think. And the, and the story I told had very serious malicious intent. We're going to take the land of the Native Americans, and we don't care. We know alcohol is going to help kill them, so we'll give it to them. We know smallpox kills, so let's give them those blankets. There was definitely malicious intent in the founding of this country and the taking of land of the people who were already here. Is it only malicious? That's my point to you. Well, sure. I, I, yeah. It's not only malicious I'm and greedy. What I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very so, by right. So, good. That's good. <laughs> this is why we come to our study um, <laughs> to become unsettled, right, with our exactly. old ways of thinking. Because then we have to kind of take it all apart and now think. Well, now what do I think about yeah. it, right? And so, so that Plymouth story. When I first learned what really happened to Native Americans, when I really learned what happened to African Americans, when I really learned our nation's history, I said, this is bullshit. Right. They sold me a bill of goods. White men who wanted to take stuff from other people told me that we were doing something good when we came here, and we weren't. They lied to me. And I was furious, and I was really upset with this country. And I was like, I don't want to be an American, really, I don't think anymore, because because you're so disillusioned with, wait a minute, you've sold me a bill of goods. But if we go deeper, this found, the founding of this country did have really, really positive goals. They really did want to build a country that was not built on an, you know, a, a king, a, one power who could randomly take everything from somebody and give it to somebody else and sentence people to death and kill children. Like... That is a good thing. Did they do terrible things and then cover it up and sell it to the people um, in order to get them behind the project? Yes, both are true. So do the ends just by the means? But, but both, I, I want to say the ends, it's all this. I, yeah. It's just all tied up together. Now, what's, what's the redemption for me in the whole thing? What is the reconstruction of it all? Knowing we did that, knowing that there were horrible things that happened and greed and stealing and murdering to get what you want, knowing all that happened, what were the justifiable, gorgeous goals of founding this country that still speak to me? Knowing they whitewashed it, knowing they lied to me, knowing it didn't happen the way that my textbooks told me it happened, I'm still an American. 
and I'm still a patriot. Now I look at those texts and go, okay, that's bullshit. Like, that's wrong. That's a lie. Where, and I choose to look at parts of the Constitution that still move me deeply. And when I watched on TV a man hold up the Constitution, you know, from his breast pocket and his son gave his life to die for that set of of beliefs and values that it really will bring something to this world that we need desperately. I, that's where I have to stay. And, and so what, what of our history, what of our texts, what of our law code does inspire me? And how can I work to make sure those values reign supreme in our country? Right? What, what do I as an American have to do? How do I live them myself? How do I teach my child civic responsibility? How do I wear my I voted sticker proudly? Um, how do I encourage civic engagement by our congregation? But you know, I mean, that that's where I have to stay. Maybe it's the book, maybe that's the problem, because I can find good material in, in Egypt and the stories that are there. And, you know, that, that even though I know they're famous, I'm willing to embrace the idea because it's a beautiful idea of ethical monotheism and God and whatnot. This is just about power. Or am I just misreading? Well, so I think what we need to do is just you just need to come back next week. <laughs> right? Like there's there's gorgeous stuff in here. There's really beautiful, beautiful stuff in here, including, by the way, the Shema. So if you throw this book out. Because because this part is really troubling, and I get it. It's very disturbing, and it's intended to manipulate 100%. But if you throw this whole book out, we go in there, and we don't have the Shema. I'm not willing to sacrifice this and give up the Shema, right? And I just need to remember, okay, we're reading this part. We know what this is about. I explain what it's about so that we don't read, put women and children to the sword and go, and men to the sword, okay, and that's okay. Because we want to say it's not okay, and we un- I want us to understand the motivations of the people writing it, and then we're going to get to the stuff that we do believe and okay. do value and do want to live idealism into. Over <laughs> the power of idealism <laughs> over cynicism. Finally. Okay. Um, I think for me, like, I have a lot of challenges with being American and being African American and being queer, and then being spiritual. So, like, so there's just like a lot of like and I, I find the beauty and this kind of goes back to what you're you know what you're challenging right now I find the beauty in just remembering that there's like yin and yang that there's the, like good and the bad there's that balance and so I can appreciate um, a lot of things that may have been hurtful um, because they have intersections for who I am today and it, like even though it sucks and it's like nasty, there's still so much beauty in it that comes from it because we do challenge our minds in this way and we talk about it and we sit with it and we struggle with it and then we kind of create the future. We create like what we want it to be. And so we could just all like continue to do that. Like this, this is bullshit as we've been saying. I like we're cursing here. Um, <laughs> like I, yeah, I think there's a lot of greatness that's coming on the other the other end of it. Nicely said, Kay. And that and what I hear you saying is if we deny this, we also deny what really happened, right? That, that there is a way that we're defined by also yeah. the really yucky, awful stuff yeah. that happened and then that can lead to its own kind of beauty. Well, going back to 
to what you have said over and over in the past, that we have to look at this as written for the audience that was intended at the time. And at the time, what was going on outside of this was pretty bad. It was pretty awful, and the multiple gods, and, and what was happening to women and children. And this, this is being created as an alternative, and there's one god. And going back to the founding of our country, you know, all these things are messy. And we have to create a narrative. And we look back, who was this being written for? Who were we talking to when the Constitution? Who was the audience? And then hopefully the people in the future can look back at this as a foundation and have the courage to reinterpret. And to expand, to expand who the good stuff applies to. Right? That we we're over that hump, and now let's look at including women, including African Americans, including the you know the immigrants that are coming in now. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's well said. Um, this this book, the beginning of uh, Deuteronomy, is read in the Jewish year, in the liturgical year, very close to the holiday. You know, you go away for a month, no whiteboard, no, like, it's like, oh, you know, she, she, we don't need that anymore, she's gone, great, lovely, okay. So the, uh, the holiday that we commemorate this Shabbat, beginning at sundown, because you can't do it on Shabbat, it is Shabbat, but we're not supposed to because it's uh, sad, uh, is Tisha B'Av, right, is the ninth day of Av. The ninth day of Av is traditionally the day that we uh, assign to um, the, the big catastrophes that have befallen the Jewish people. And many of them were actually uh, very close to Tisha B'Av, if not on Tisha B'Av. Um, originally, it was actually on Tisha B'Av, which is how we get the holiday. But even after, when the Jews were expelled from Spain, they had to be gone by July 31st. It was issued March 31st. They had to be gone from Spain by July 31st. July 31st was Tisha B'Av. So um, it's weird. It's a kind of creepy, freaky, like that, that a lot of those things actually, and that in England also, when England expelled the Jews, it was uh, in July. So... Um, all very close to Tisha B'Av, so a lot of the big catastrophes. So it's the day that we remember all of the many things that have befallen the Jewish people. So that that is read in juxtaposition with this. So that also informs, to your point, David, why we read this, right? That all these catastrophes that happen, we read, we beat them up, our God led us, we took, right? It's how a people deals, on some level with, right, the catastrophes that have befallen them, um, is looking back to the glory days when we were protected even. I'm going to go that far, right? I'm going to be heretical and say back to when we were protected. Um, because since then, since, since 70, the Jews were vulnerable wherever they were. However great life was, could be gone like that. We saw it in Germany. They gained and lost citizenship three times in Germany. So every time they feel it's great, and it is, until it's not, right? And, um, and so it makes sense that, that this is what we read as a Jewish community as we commemorate the 9th of Av. Uh, so I want to look at uh, this Reconstructionist commentary with you. Um, just go to that second paragraph. Traditionally, 
Tisha B'Av was a dark day of mourning as we cried over our losses and bewailed our exile. On Tisha B'Av, we felt most keenly our sense of powerlessness and our feeling of separation from our spiritual center in our ancestral homeland. It was the day on which we acknowledged the emotional and spiritual pain of our people's exile. But today we are no longer in exile. Our people have returned to our ancient homeland and rebuilt our towns and cities. We are no longer powerless. Our world has changed and our needs have changed. To speak to us today, Tisha B'Av can no longer be the day on which we remember all the evil that has happened to us. It needs to become the day on which we understand that despite our setbacks, our struggles, our real losses and deep suffering, we, the Jewish people, have overcome the obstacles faith has set before us. Our existence today is a triumph of our people's spirit. <clears throat> Any commemoration of Tisha B'Av that does not acknowledge this reality is inadequate. There is something miraculous about the Jewish people, our culture, and our faith. We no longer need to find ways to mourn our losses, but need to discover new paths to cherish all that we have gained. Thank God our chief worry is not being crushed in our weakness, but becoming arrogant and careless with our success and power. We need to enhance our sense of appreciation for the blessing we have. We must not take for granted and foolishly lose all that for generations we could only gain in our dreams. A renewed and transformed Tisha B'Av commemoration can help us greatly in this task. We need to refocus Tisha B'Av from a day of Jewish mourning to a Jewish memorial day. Let us transform it to a day on which we can solemnly acknowledge all of those people who over the centuries accepted hardship, experienced sorrow, and even suffered death so that we, the Jewish people, could survive. Let us make Tisha B'Av the day on which we give thanks to them for their loyalty to our people and our faith and the day on which we renew our commitment to the heritage they so lovingly and painfully bequeathed to us. We, the Jewish people, are survivors and the descendants of survivors. Let us not forget all those whom over the countless generations of our people kept the faith in our God, in our Torah, and in each other. Let us not forget to honor their struggles, but also, let us also not forget to celebrate their gifts. I think this is a wonderful piece to move into Tisha B'Av because so often I find that when we harp on how the world has treated us and how it's been one murderous event after another for us, we tend to lean into the side of us that wants revenge, the side of us that wants to show them, the side of us who says never again. I'm not saying we shouldn't say any of that. But let never again mean something other than because we're going to blow them up first. Let never again mean we will stand for a country. We will build a society that makes sure we're doing our part to prevent that kind of spread of evil and poison in this world and are welcoming and supportive of those who are trying to flee and escape it to build the kind of lives that our ancestors could only do fleeing somewhere else. So as we come to this commemoration of Tisha B'Av, as we begin the book of Devarim, which is our book ultimately of how do we live into a covenantal system of laws that help us become a holy people, let us do that with gratitude for the sacrifices of those who have gone before us, and let us be charged uh, with hope, given that 
uh, the gifts that we have as Jews in this country, which has never happened before, the flourishing of the Jewish community in this country, um, let us use it, our power, our access, our connections, our wealth, our minds, um, our passion, let us use that uh, to be sure that it doesn't happen to us ever again and that it never happens to anybody else. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.